0: 1 Samuel 26, let's pray. All right, well, Jesus, we need you, Lord. We believe that your word is living, that it's inspired by you, that it is your word for us today. And so we just set our hearts before you, and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit so that we would not only hear what you have to say, Lord, but that we would receive it and that we would walk in it, Lord. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we're uh, continuing in our study of 1 Samuel, and uh, I'd like to recap just a little bit where we've come so far. In chapter 13, God tells Saul that his time as being king, his lineage, it'll end. God's rejected him because of his hardness of heart, his disobedience. And God says that he's chosen someone else to be king, a man after his own heart. And we see that God doesn't look at the outer part of a man, but he looks at the inner part. He looks at the heart. And in chapter 16, we see that David is that man, the man after God's own heart. And we see that he's anointed to be king. And the day that will be established is yet to come. We're going to get there. But we see that Saul's embittered by this. David's near to him. David's dear to him. Saul's son is David's best friend. And Saul for years upwards of 15 years chases David, and at almost every turn tries to kill him. And then we saw in chapter 24 just recently that David had the opportunity to kill Saul. If you remember in the cave there in En Gedi, but he didn't. He knew that Saul's life was in God's hand, and as long as Saul's alive, he's still God's anointed. David can't lay a hand on him. And we're coming to the end of this book and really to the climax of the story between Saul and David. And these final chapters here that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks are pretty complex. There's a lot to them. They're quite dreary. They're not super uplifting. Matter of fact, we'll see a pretty dark time in David's life today and next week. And that's why the title of this evening's study is From Star to Stench. You'll see why here in a little bit. But what I want us to see over the next three weeks is a story of God's sovereignty, a story of his faithfulness, a story of his mercy. Because in all this, despite Saul's utter lack of lasting repentance, despite David's stumbling, as we'll see tonight, we see that God is sovereign and his hand is moving for the sake of his chosen king and for the sake of his chosen people. A big theme is that when we are faithless, God is faithful. So with that, Let's get into chapter 26, and we'll read verses 1 to 4. It says, Now the Ziphites came to, da- uh, came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakila?' We'll be struggling a little bit tonight. Yeah. Opposite Jeshimon. Then Saul arose and went to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. Would you throw up that first map? Don't pay attention to the red arrows that comes with the original. This is the best that I could find. But hopefully it'll give us a little bit of a layout of what's going on. What we're paying attention to right now is the green highlights. Saul is up north in Gibeah, and we should know that Gibeah is Saul's hometown, and it's where he established the capital of his reign, right? He would often go back to Gibeah and spend his time there and kind of regroup and do whatever it is that he would do. And we see that the Ziphites who were there in the south, they came up north and they reported David's whereabouts to Saul. And they say that he's hiding in the hill of Hekila opposite Jeshimon. And Jeshamon in the original, it just means desert or wilderness, And most likely, this means that David is in the area of En-Gedi, there to the east, the eastern part of the Judean wilderness. Probably not exactly in En-Gedi, but he probably stayed in that area after his last encounter with Saul. So the Ziphites go up north, and they tell him, hey, David's still hanging out around where we are. And what we need to understand is that this is the second time that the Ziphites snitched on David, right? It's a true betrayal because the Ziphites are the people of Judah. They're David's countrymen. They're his brothers. And as we look through the Psalms, we can see hints of David's personal struggle. Not even hints. We blatantly see his personal struggles that he's going through at this time and other times of his life, especially when he's running from Saul. And he often mentions things like betrayal, the people being against him, his own people being against him. Or they're mocking him for his suffering, and he's just bringing that to the Lord, right? So not only is his king against him, not only are the king's is the king's army against him, but his own brothers are against him in this, betraying him, and he's pressured from all sides. There's not a place he can stay and rest, and so Saul he makes his way south towards David. And David, hearing of this, he sends out spies to confirm that he actually came. And so let's pick back up in verse 5. And it says, So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Brother of Joab, saying, Who will go up with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with a spear, right to the earth. I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, uh, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, And they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because of deep sleep from the Lord. So David goes, and he sees Saul's camp. We see that 3,000 choice men of Israel, this pretty sizable army, has gathered around him. And he sees that everybody's asleep, and the army's made a big circle, an encampment, and there's Saul right in the middle of them. Right, he's surrounded on all sides by his, by his own men. But David decides not to take his army of 600 men, which would still not be great odds. That's five to one odds. You know, you're not looking very good at that point. But he does something crazier. He takes one guy with him, and he says, let's go. Let's go get Saul. Abishai. And we're going to look a little bit more at Abishai here in a moment. But he marches straight to Saul right through the encampment, right through the border there. And he goes after him. And we see that God had put a deep sleep on the army. We have the luxury of knowing that now, right? The Lord's revealed that to us. David probably didn't know that. At least the text doesn't tell us that he knows that. But he was walking in trust to the Lord. The same trust, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord, that allowed him to face and defeat the giant. David's still walking in that. And you see David's bravery to take one man and walk into the camp of the enemy, it looks like foolishness. It looks like madness. It really looks like weakness. right? It's pretty brave, but he's pretty weak there. Just two guys versus 3,000. But in reality, his reliance on the Lord was his strength. Saul relied on the strength of his army. He thought, they're all around me. Nobody's going to get through here. I'm going to sleep. And that's why when he was sleeping away without a care in the world, he was caught unsuspecting. He was relying on the wrong thing. And that reminds me of another hero in the Bible who, coming in the form of weakness and foolishness, overcame his prideful enemy. We think about the story in Mark where the devil... Right, he thought there at the crucifixion. He thought he had Jesus pinned down. Right? We see all throughout the Scripture the promise of the coming Messiah and the devil and his trickery and his foolishness. He thought, man, I'll stop this from happening. In Esther, we see it when they attempt to genocide, commit genocide against the Jews. We see it in the story of Moses when they try and kill all the Hebrew babies. We see it in the story of Jesus when Jesus is born. And they try and kill all of the Hebrew boys, right? Time and time again, the enemy thinks, I've got him this time. But then we look at the cross, and I'm sure that Satan just was having a field day thinking, finally, he came and he's dead. I've got him this time. But he never expected that in Jesus' seeming weakness and foolishness, the cross would be his own downfall. That would be his destruction. He was caught sleeping. And David that night could have used his power to take the kingdom. He could have taken it. It would have been his. Right? It would make sense. But we see that his conscience wouldn't allow him. Now, he didn't want to lay hands on God's anointed. He says it a few times. Who am I? But Abishai, his right-hand man here in the battle, he sees that this is a perfect opportunity right, to take the kingdom it's an opportunity from the Lord. The Lord has given your, hand, the, your enemy into your hand this day. He's done it, right? And that kind of speaks to us a little bit. There is wisdom and there is safety in the multitude of counselors. Yet there may be times where the Lord's speaking to us and we got to hear from him. So Abishai says that all I need is one shot. I'll get him. I'll pin him to the earth. He won't get up. And if we look at 2 Samuel 23, we should believe that. He was a serious dude. He's one of David's mighty men. And we see that Abishai, one time, he lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them all. So one sleeping guy is not going to give him very many problems. He could have done it. He wasn't kidding around. Abishai was a serious dude. But Abishai tempted David here in the wilderness with a convenient compromise and a justification. If Abishai did it, David could have said, Well, I didn't do it. I didn't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I didn't take the kingdom by force. This guy did. Pretty convenient. And just as David was tempted in the wilderness to take the kingdom by force, to take a shortcut to the throne, so was Jesus. In Luke 4, we're going to have it up on the screen here. Starting in verse 5, we read, this is one of the times when the enemy is tempting Jesus in the Judean wilderness, probably not far from where David was. says, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you in their glory. Who's he talking to? (laughs) My goodness. For uh, this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. He's caught sleeping. Therefore, if you will worship me, All will be yours. That's what he's been saying from the beginning. That's why he fell. But in this, David points us to Christ. There is no shortcut to the kingdom. In God's kingdom, Jesus showed us in his first coming, the power and authority and strength are not in taking the lives of others. It's not in taking from others. It's not in cutting others down. Strength is not in force. Strength is in trusting the Father. David's strength was his willingness to risk his life, trusting God's character and God's promises. If God is going to give me the kingdom, he'll give it to me in his time and his way. I'll walk right into that camp and I'll show it. That was the exact same trust that Christ himself was walking in his first coming when he came. Jesus' victory over the enemy was by giving his life in trust, knowing that the Father will not let him be overcome ultimately. His death is not his defeat, it's his victory. Jesus marched into the camp of the enemy and overcame him with what looked like weakness, what looked like foolishness, but actually was strength. And as we pick back up in verse 16, we see that this topic of victory over the enemy is continued. So we'll read, sorry, in, in verse 13, we'll read from 13 through 16. It says, Now David went over to the other side, he's come out of the camp, and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner. Remember, Abner was sleeping next to to Saul, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, I'm going to do my my best Wes impression. Are you not a man? (laughs) Like, I just see Wes and all of his glory and manliness. Just... David's cutting, right? He doesn't need a sword to cut this man down. Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the King? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the King. This thing that you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. <laughs> because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. Man, these verses make me happy. <laughs> David is, he's not kidding around. Right, Abner is Saul's cousin. He's the commander of Saul's army. Here he's acting as his bodyguard sleeping next to him. And here these two guys come in, get right next to Saul, take the spear that's in the ground next to his head, take the jug of water, and they sneak right back on out. And David calls out in his first words, Are you not a man? <laughs> Whew. You had one job, and you blew it. Man, David just makes a mockery of him. Total disrespect. I mean, just a, a holy boo, right? It's like, come get some. <laughs> Man. And obviously he's showing that he could have killed Saul. He had every opportunity. Abishai wanted to. You know, there's somebody that came into the camp intending to do it. But take note that in, in taking the spear... He's disarmed them. And taking the jug of water, he's taken their sustenance. Like, your life was in my hands. You can do nothing to me. This too reminds me of Christ. Having been victorious over the enemy on the cross, having been victorious through his resurrection and a new life, we read in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. A mockery of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Jesus put his enemy to shame. Are you not a man? This is the victory that Christ gives us over the enemy. And as we stand in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine. Here in the death of Christ I live. Right. And as David walks bravely and trusts towards God, so too we can walk in confidence through this victory in Christ. He's overcome. He's put them to shame. He's taken the authority that they once had over us, don't have it anymore. Now we can walk. Not in our own power, please believe me. (laughs) Not, Not in my power, but in his. So let's round out the chapter and see David and Saul's interaction. Starting in verse 17. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. He's saying, I will repent, I'll make it right. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. Not in yours. In the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Again, his hope is not in armies, it's not in Saul, it's in the Lord. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall do, both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. And here we see another sad conversation between Saul and David. Whether he's genuine or not at this moment, it's hard to tell, I don't know his heart. It's a pitiful song he sung before. And every time, he'd throw another spear. Every time, he'd go after him again. Right? He left in Gedi pretty much saying the same thing. And then when the Ziphites come back and tell him, hey, he's still sticking around, what does Saul do? He comes right back down, goes after him. It's sad. But in this, we see David's heart. What do we see? We see that he is still loving, respectful, and honoring of Saul. Saul doesn't deserve it. His position does. Saul himself doesn't deserve it. The calling and anointing that the Lord has put on his life in this time deserves the honor. David says some hard things to him. That's for sure. He's not afraid to call out some sin, but he still honors him as unto the Lord. We also see that his heart longs to be home, to be in the congregation with his people, to be in the promised land, to make sacrifices, to worship God in the place where God established it at that time. It's as though David's pleading with Saul to see his madness. Not just like, hey, you're trying to kill me and I haven't done anything, but he's trying to play his conscience by appealing to what's righteous. Like, Saul, you're doing more than just trying to kill me because you think that I'm trying to usurp your power. You're keeping me and my family and 600 men and their families from worshiping God. Think about what you're doing. You're keeping your own men from worshiping God. By running after me. David doesn't want violence, he doesn't want war, he doesn't want treachery, not with Saul. He wants to be with his people in simplicity, and he wants to worship God together. At Staff Devos, we were going through we're going through Titus, and we were reading in Titus chapter two, and just thinking about how David here is walking in godliness, he's walking in righteousness, he's walking in wisdom. We see a lot of characteristics that, that Paul talks about there in Titus two. We read in verses six through eight. Paul's telling Titus, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, right? to be self-controlled, to, to take captive their thoughts. And then he tells Titus, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Isn't that what we see in, in David right here? Like he's walking in this, he's speaking in this, and when the time comes, Saul can't accuse him of anything. The Lord's his defender, and he claims not the power and the authority or the defense of any person, the Lord. And though Saul speaks the words of repentance, David doesn't trust him. He's walking in wisdom, they part ways, and this will be David and Saul's last interaction, their last conversation. And David's words in 26.10 that we read, they'll come true. He said, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. We'll see more about that in a couple of weeks. But, man, in this chapter, David is such a star. He's walking in righteousness. He's fully trusting in the Lord. He's bravely walking into the camp of the enemy, knowing that if God has anointed him, God will make it happen. God will protect them. Like it's up to the Lord. It's not up to me. He's learning from his mistakes. There's a very sweet progression that we see, really, from chapter 24 on, <clears throat> 24, 25, and 26. We could even call it sanctification, right? In chapter 24, David feels guilty for even cutting off a chunk of the hem of, of Saul's robe. He's like, man, I shouldn't have done this. I've laid hands on the Lord's anointed. Even that's too much. And then in 25, through Abigail and Nabal, David learns that he doesn't have to deal with conflict by murdering somebody. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to kill him. And Abigail's like, hold on. So he's learning. I don't have to kill. And then here in 26, he shows absolute mercy and respect to someone who's yet again trying to kill him. He's laying at the Lord's feet. Like, this is what a king should be. This is what a king should walk in. This is what a leader should walk in. Because David knows that God has established that man as the king for now, as much of an idiot as, it is, as he is, right? Like, it's up to the Lord. And now we turn to chapter 27, and the story just takes a wild turn. Let's read 27.1. David parted ways, and he said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. After all that, David says to himself in his own heart, because Saul will never stop trying to kill me, there is nothing better for me to do than to turn to my enemies and to go into their land. What happened? Saul could have never driven David out of the promised land. He had been chasing him for years and years. David stayed. He did leave for a minute, had to pretend to be crazy and come back. Thought he learned from it. And 1 Samuel 22, a prophet told David to stay in Judah, and he did. And he experienced God's miraculous protection, God's favor, God's honor. But understand that what Saul couldn't do, discouragement and despair could. They were a greater enemy than Saul could ever be. Sometimes fear in our own heart is greater than anything we could ever face in the world. And I'm sure we've all experienced seasons or times of real discouragement, of despair, right? times of sickness, of poverty of loss, just absolute wilderness like David, just constantly on the run, right? Our hearts are like empty chasms, can't see the light, there's no hope, right? Where once we felt like a sequoia tree in a forest, just rooted, strong, firm, like right now, man, I just feel like a dandelion in the wind, just blowing away, there's nothing holding me. Discouragement and despair can cause us to make the most rash and unexpected decisions, just like David. They'll get to us. All right? The man who once only wanted to be in his land and worship his God with his people is now going to a foreign land, to an enemy nation, to pagan idol worshipers. Why? What's the difference between now and before? What happened? We have to understand that at the heart of walking in discouragement and despair is unbelief, at least for a time, is not walking in belief or faith. Unbelief in God's promises and protection. Again, I want to underline this. We're not talking about salvation, we're not talking about losing salvation. We're talking about walking in the faith that we've placed in Christ. Would you agree with me that there are times where I do believe in Christ, but I don't walk in it? That is at the heart of, again, walking in discouragement and despair and ultimately sin. It's doubting in his words and his character. And David so many times had acted on the assurance that if God anointed him to be king, God will make it happen. Whatever battle this might be, however far Saul chases me, whoever turns against me, God will make it happen because he promised. David, in chapter 26, he overcame the temptation to seize victory in an unrighteous way. The temptation to lay hands on Saul. But here he's overcome by temptation by admitting defeat in an unrighteous way. Now he's acting as though God didn't anoint him. God doesn't care about him. And it reminds me of Mark chapter 4 when Jesus called to his disciples. He said, come, let's cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they get in the boat. And Jesus slept in the boat. right? And at night a storm arises. And it's such a bad storm that some of the disciples who were really experienced fishermen, they were afraid that they were going to die. Like It's serious. And what do they say to Jesus? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing and we see that Jesus does a a miracle he calls, commands the winds and the wave to be still, they are and then he turns to his disciples and he says to them or asks them why are you so fearful? well Jesus, didn't you see why are you so fearful? how is it that you have no faith? discouragement, despair what were they supposed to believe in? On his words and his promises. Jesus said, Let us cross over to the other side. He didn't say, Let's get in the boat and see what happens. <laughs> we'll see how far we make it. No, Jesus said, We're going to make it to the other side. And they doubted him. We're perishing. No, you're not. I said, We'll make it. They doubted his promises, they doubted his words, and moreover, they doubted his character. Do you not care? Despair is present where faith is absent in our lives. When we despair, we're not walking in faith. We're not walking in trust. And again, I want to underscore that doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. Doesn't mean that we're saved. We could never believe enough to make God save us. It's our belief in Him. In Him that saves us. But we may find ourselves in dire circumstances. In hardships. In the valley, in the desert like David. And even though our circumstances can add up and bog us down and get to us. It's not the circumstances that cause us to despair. It's a lack of faith even for a time. David said in his heart. We say in our hearts. And we'll see that the choices that David makes in light of this, in verses 2 through 4, at least starting there. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Malk. King of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he saw him no more. David got what he wanted. If you toss up that second map, so we see that David kind of goes from the eastern part of the Judean wilderness, he heads towards Gath, which is in Philistia. Okay, and then we'll get to the other part in a moment. We don't exactly know how he got there, but he got there. And he presents himself to Achish, the Philistine king. And, you know, if we recall, David, was he went to the Philistines and they kicked him out and he had to strip down and pretend that he was a raving lunatic. Right, and we have to understand. Like most commentators agree that this probably isn't the same Akish. Akish is most likely a term used for a king. It's probably not a name. Whereas that Akish rejected him, this one receives him. It might be because he's bringing a small army. And so when David arrives, he says, starting in verse five, "If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country." that I may dwell there for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you so achish gave him ziklag that day therefore ziklag has belonged to the kings of kings of judah to this day now the time that david dwelt in the country of the philistines was 1 full year and 4 months so david goes down to ziklag And we'll see in the next slide down the line. We don't know exactly where Ziklag was. It may have been there on the eastern part of that river. It might have been further west. Doesn't really matter. It's somewhere in that general vicinity. And we see David just groveling before Achish. My Lord, your servant, if I find favor in your eyes. And I get it that he has to kind of suck up a little bit to the king so that he doesn't get his head chopped off or you know, so that he kind of gets what he wants. But man, (laughs) it's just not a good look. It's just terrible. Like the Lord is his king. What's he doing? And he asks for a piece of land outside of Gath and it's likely because he understands that bringing 600 men with their whole families, it's like bringing a whole neighborhood (laughs) to a town at once and it's going to have huge economic impact on the town. It's also possible that he does want to take his people away from just the idol, pagan, idol-worshipping center that would be Gath, kind of the capital of this region of Philistia. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And it's interesting that we see that when, back in Joshua, when the Israelites invaded Canaan, the Promised Land, and God told them to start taking over land, we know that they didn't take all the land that God had allotted for them and called them to take, but we see that Ziklag God appointed to Judah. They never took it. That's the tribe of Judah. And then he appointed Ziklag to the tribe of Simeon. They never took it. But here, now that David's there, from then on out, it stayed with the kings of Judah. And we can look at this and call it God's favor and finally giving a piece of the promised land that was never taken to Israel through David. Yeah, God's faithful. He's good. He's sovereign. But we cannot be quick to associate a good outcome even an outcome from the Lord with a righteous walk. I think that we all know that we can't look at hardships in life and say, oh, that's because of this sin in your life, or it's because of that in your life, like the friends of Job. We understand that's not how it works with the Lord. At the same time, we can't do the inverse. We can't say, look at this good thing in your life. It's because you have made it happen. It's because you, everything's going well. Obviously, there's principles but we can't always be so quick to judge. We can look at this and call it the Lord's favor. But God didn't give David Ziklag because David was walking in perfect righteousness or in obedience to the Lord right now. God did it because he's good and he's faithful to his people. No matter what. And I know that there have been times in my life, and maybe you've seen it in your own life, where things are just going great. I could even say I'm blessed, but I'm walking in sin. All right, what's, what's there in me that the Lord would bless me for in that? It's, it's not because I'm doing anything, even when I'm walking well. It's not because I'm doing anything. It's because he's faithful. And I know that this is a struggle for a lot of people. Maybe those, especially those outside of the church. Man, why? Why are bad people like prospering? And scripture deals with it quite often. In the Psalms, we see, in the Proverbs, we see, and all of the prophets of the Old Testament, we see. And, as, and it's, it seems unfair to those who are walking in righteousness and just suffering. But for as many times as Scripture deals with that issue, Scripture also talks about the end of the road for those who continue in wickedness. Psalm 7 Starting in 14, for example, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. In the New, Te- New Testament, in uh, Romans 6, 1, Paul talking to us about should we walk in, in grace, should we walk in sin? What, would, what should that look like? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. David right now is walking in blatant unbelief and disobedience in this chapter. God's sovereign goodness and his work is not an indication that all is well with David. David will face some serious consequences that we'll see next week for these actions, but God will still be working for David's sake to bring him to repentance Working for the kingdom's sake, because it's his. Not because David is perfect, but because God is faithful. Let's finish the chapter. We'll read from verse 8 through the end. David and his men went up and raided the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old. As you go to Shore, even as far as the land of Egypt, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the apparel, and returned and came to Akish. Then Akish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Well, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeromelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, Thus David did. And thus was his behavior, and all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore he will be my servant forever. Now, as we'll see, Achish was working on a little bit of false information, but I don't think that he was wrong that he has made his people utterly abhor him He's fled to these pagans putting his trust in them he's basically a, a pirate right. he's going to dis- different Philistine areas attacking the towns you can see on the final map that we'll look at he kind of makes a from Ziklag wherever that might be he makes a little bit of a circle going to the Geshurites going to the Gerzites going to the Amalekites Dromulites, Kenites and then returning back through the, the Negev desert and he's murdering everyone He's killing all the women, all the men, probably all the children. So that nobody can report to Akish what he's doing. Not leaving anybody to, to take the news to him. And then he's going back and he's telling Akish that he's attacking Judah. David's back to murder. And there's a little bit of a pattern in his life where he just, he makes a big mistake. And then he covers it up by killing people. He's a man after God's own heart. We have to walk through that. We'll walk through it as we go through the books. And we could say that, well, these are the enemies of God and of Israel. And God told the Israelites to totally eradicate them, the Amalekites in particular, and to take the land and so on. And David's fulfilling that command, certainly. God's given that command. But David's heart's not right. David is lying lying. David's plundering to bring that back to Achish to appease him. God has been very clear that they are not to do that. He's doing this in front of his own family, his own sons. He's doing this in front of his 600 men and their families. What is he leading them in? And he got to this low point in only a year and a half. And understand that some interpretations say four months. And that's how discouragement, compromise, and sin work. Little by little, over time... Have you ever just been struck with a thought of, man, how did I get here? Just kind of, you're there. How did I end up with this addiction? How did I end up on these sites? How did I end up in this situation? Like, where did it all go wrong? Just little by little, over time, and then finally our eyes are open to it, and it's like, whoa, how could have this happened? Well, it goes wrong with us just as it did with David. He said in his own heart, when our heart turns from the Lord in distrust, that's where it all goes wrong. The greatest of sins begin with the smallest of unbelief. As Akish says, David has made his people utterly him. In the ESV, it says that he's made himself an utter stench to his people. We'll get to a turning point in the story next week, a little bit uphill. But let's not skip on the seriousness of unbelief and distrust towards the Lord. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's a harsh reality we all find ourselves in from time to time. However, let's look to the one who experienced true despair in our place, on our behalf. If you recall, Christ asked of the Father if there was any other way. Let this cup pass. If we can do it any other way. He wasn't doubtful. He was not walking in unbelief or distrust towards his father. He fully knew what he was about to face. That for the first time in all of eternity, the father would turn away. He would be alone. Not because of his sin, not because of his unbelief, but because of ours. We said that in my life, despair and faith cannot coexist. That's in my life. Not so in Jesus. He took our despair while being full of faith. Full of faith in what? That the Father will not leave him in the grave. Jesus experienced what David should have, God's wrath for wickedness. He deserved the same thing that Saul got. End of your kingdom, end of the line, buddy. A violent dealing came down on his crown, his crown of thorns. Jesus experienced what we should have for our sin, born of unbelief. Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? I take that literally. Somehow, I don't understand how it works and the divinity and humanity of Jesus, I don't understand at all, but I take that literally. The Father turned away from the Son, not because of the Son's wrongdoing, because of ours. He who knew no sin became sin for us, was made to be sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. He experienced what true despair is, what the true end of being surrounded by the enemy is. Yet he still walked in faith. Christ went to the cross purely out of trust that he'll suffer for a time, but he won't be left. Won't be left in the grave. And Hebrews 12, 12, 12-2, we read, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was looking at what comes after. That was his faith. God would be glorified. He would be glorified. We would be saved. For that joy, he endured the cross, despising the shame. David forsook his kingdom and shed blood to seek refuge from his enemy. Jesus, the true king, laid down his kingdom and shed his own blood to give refuge to his enemy. That's what true authority is. That's what true power is. That's what true leadership is. That is the heart of our king. There will come a day when he'll come and that sword will come out of his mouth. He'll wipe him out. But his desire now is to save. Now instead of forsaking him to find comfort and peace in something else, we can turn to him for those things we can turn to him for refuge we can turn to him for hope and peace the very next verse in hebrews 12 so consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls i want to read those two verses again hebrews 12:2 and hebrews 12:3 how do we deal with despair How do we deal when it's just our heart tells us there is nothing better for me than to turn from God and turn to this or turn to that? This is how we do it. Hebrews 12.2, Hebrews 12.3. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the beginning, the finisher, the end of our faith, who this is what he's done for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he's done for us, that's his end, and we are seated together with Christ at the right hand of God. 12:3, for consider him in your despair, consider him. in your discouragement, consider him in your suffering, consider him. On the mountaintop, consider him, who endured such hostility from sinners, from Saul, from his brethren, from his brothers in Judah. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider him. Wherever you are now, look to Jesus. can't promise that the tough times will pass. They might linger. But our circumstances don't cause us to despair. The state of our heart does. Consider him. You'll be filled with strength to overcome the enemy. Why? Because he's been put to shame. He's been disarmed. He's given victory. As you're in the camp of the enemy, which you, you just might be dug in the trenches there tonight. As you're in the camp of the enemy, you'll walk with confidence knowing he doesn't have power over you. He was mocked by Jesus. That's the truth that we walk in. Let's pray. And you want to come up, we'll do a last song of worship. And we'll just give the Lord glory for what he's done. Consider him now. Let your not heart be... In despair or discouraged, Jesus has died and rose again. You are seated with him at the right hand of the Father, walking his victory. Lord, we do thank you just for your goodness. Lord, in David, we do see a great example of godliness, of faith, of radical bravery. But we also see an example of a man who's come to the end of himself and turns to the wrong things. Lord, that is us. I am there, but Jesus, as an example, as he may be, you are our hope. You went to the cross, despised the shame, suffered hostility, but you are victorious. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.